You can be seated. While you're being seated, be turning to Ephesians 4. We're going to be in verses 7 down through, the, down through verse 16 this morning. There's a, there should be a page of notes in your bulletin. And while you're turning there, I just, I just was thinking this past week in reference to this message all the way back to when I was a teenager, which was like in the dark ages, all those years ago, right? And I, I, was, I was thinking and remembering that like most kids my age, I, I remember trying to figure out what in the world I was going to do when I, when I grew up. Did, did you all have that, those moments, you know, kind of flipping through your head and, and being unsure and uncertain? Now, obviously, a choice was made, and obviously, the pastor-minister role is where I ended up. But before the pastor gig ever really came into my head, there were lots of other things that were floating around. I really wanted to be a professional baseball player. I Seriously, thinking about being a musician. I was the drum major of the high school band and very active in music. And I don't know if you've ever heard me say this, but there was a there was a moment where I really wanted to be an architect. I really was thinking about drawing buildings and and designing things. I mean, I was kind of kind of all kind of all over that. In fact, for for a season, I, I I worked at an architectural office in Orange, California. It was it was a it was a a business that had two sides to it. One was the architectural side side, and then the other side was called Graphico. It was it was a it was a rendering side. On, on, the, on the architectural side, the guys were drawing homes. And, you know, they, they, were sitting at their, they were sitting at their draft boards and they were designing all this. There was floor plans and, you know, there were fronts and sides of the, of the building. And, and then, then all the working drawings that went along with it, all the electrical and HVAC and all the roof trusts and, you know, all of those things that go together to put, put a home together. And, and, and most people, when they look at blueprints, it's, it's easy just to get lost in them. So once these blueprints and these two-dimensional drawings came together and they were all finished and they were all approved, then it would move to the graphic side. And on the graphic side were literally a bunch of artists. And they took the, they took the two-dimensional drawings and what they would do is literally draw a, a very a scale of what the house would actually look like. And they would put it into three dimensions. So somebody that was looking at blueprints, they could suddenly see what this house was going to look like from the street. And then, and then with it, they would add in all the textures, all the bricks and all the walkways and all the siding. And then they would draw in all the trees and all the plants. And then when all that was done, it was drawn on a piece of vellum. When all that was done, it would be taken to a, to a place where it was transferred onto a thick piece of mylar, plastic. And then those black lines, the, the drawing would literally be flipped over and then would all be painted so it would come out looking something like this. Now, my job at Graphico, on the, on the, I, I did a little bit of work on the, on the architectural side, but on the graphic side, my job was to take these finished renderings and to, to put them on mat board and then, to, and then frame them. So cut mats and get them all framed up. And then, I, and, then I was, and then I was charged with delivering these renderings to all the builders all around Southern California. And I'll just tell you, it was, it was, it was a dream job for any 16-year-old because I got to drive the freeways of Los Angeles. And I had somebody paying me to do it. Think about that. I so I in this car ripping all over. I, I mean, I knew the freeways like the back of my hand. It was, it was, it was a great thing. Now, now, as you would expect, being in this position, I was given some resource. I, I, I had all these mat boards, and when we were running low, I'd go to the art supply and I would and I would buy more mat. I had a bunch of knives with very, very, very sharp blades. In fact, at one point I about cut my finger off with one of them. I was given long, straight edge metal rulers to to cut all of this with. I was, I was given a van to drive, and I was given a credit card so I could fill the van up with gas. It was what every 16-year-old boy could ever want. Resource. Resource. Resource to get the job done. According to Oxford Dictionary, resource is a stock or supply of money, material, staff, other assets that can be drawn be drawn on by a person or organization in order to function properly. If you're going to do a job right, then you have to have the necessary 
tools in your hand. If you don't have the tools, then nobody can hold you accountable for what you didn't get done. And God understands that. God understands that so much that he's taken responsibility to supply us with the resource needed to get the task he has laid on our shoulders accomplished. It's where Paul is leading us in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul makes three points that, that, that I want to encourage you to put your attention to. And the first one is simply this. Jesus has the authority and the resource to gift us to do his work. Ephesians 4, 7 says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And when you hear the word grace, for most people, what they do immediately here is they go to salvation. They think of saving grace. The grace that poured out because of the sacrifice of Jesus when he died, when he died on the cross. He, he paid for our sins. And grace flows because of that. Our sins can be forgiven because of that. We are clean. And listen, that, honestly, that should be a reason that you wake up every morning and jump up and down because God is good and he has taken your sin. He's cast it from from the east, as far as the east is from the west, he's thrown it to the depths of the sea. He will remember it no more. Come on, church. Amen. It's a, it's a reason to scream and shout. But the grace that Paul is talking about here is not saving grace. The grace that Paul is talking about is serving grace. This grace comes to us in the form of spiritual gifts that are given in order to help each of us have a place of service and a place of ministry in the church. Now, there's several passages in the New Testament where you can read about this. In Romans chapter 12, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and right here in Ephesians chapter 4. And honestly, the encouragement of Scripture when it comes to spiritual gifts is simple. 1 Peter 4.10 says, each of us should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. The message is simple. Put your gift to work. Use your gift. The body, the church, you are necessary. We need you to be involved so that the work of the ministry can be accomplished. And one more thing here that you might find interesting is who the giver of these gifts is. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 says, as Christ apportioned it. Now, typically, when we think of spiritual gifts, we think of the Holy Spirit giving these gifts. And, and that would be correct because several times in the New Testament, we read that it is the Holy Spirit bringing these things to us. But here in Ephesians 4, these gifts are also attributed to Jesus. And that, that shouldn't surprise you. I mean, the Godhead is, is an interesting phenomenon. It's, it's three independent personalities, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who all live together as one. Three distinct personalities, but, they're, but, but, but they are all one. So if one is doing it, really all of them are doing it. So if the Holy Spirit is giving something, it's really Jesus giving it as well. Now it leads to an interesting few verses in Paul's writing. And that starts in verse 8, where Paul says, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Now, if you're reading through this section of Scripture, you might find yourself saying, huh, what? I mean, what? I mean, Paul's motoring along with his pen. Christ is apportioning gifts. And, and then all of a sudden, kind of somewhere out of nowhere, he's like, he's like taking this left turn and, and moving us down a rabbit trail. He's talking about the gifts that come to the church to enable us to operate. And then all of a sudden, he's quoting from Psalms chapter 68. And it appears to get confusing. And that's because sometimes, honestly, we make things more difficult than they really ought to be. The verse Paul is quoting from comes out of Psalm 68, verse 18. Here's what it says. When you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. You received gifts from men, even from the rebellious, that you, O Lord God, might dwell there. Now, the psalm here is written by David. And it's depicting David's triumph over the city of Jerusalem. When a king moves against a city and his army defeats that city, when they have a military campaign and it is victorious, the king oftentimes returns home to a parade and the people line the streets and the people are screaming and shouting. And, 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 and oftentimes the, 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 when the king would come home, he would bring captives with him. These would, these would be people that are, are now going to serve as slaves 
in, in their new adopted kingdom. They're going to serve the king. And that's exactly what happened with David. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, David attacked the Jebusites who were living in the city of Jerusalem. And David won the battle that day. The city was taken. Now, the city would become the, the, the place where David built the palace. And David wasn't going to actually build it. His son Solomon would. But this is going to become the city of David. The, the, it's, it's going to become the center of Judaism. Eventually, and again, in Solomon's range, the, reign, the temple is going to be built in this place as well, which would lead to the city becoming the center of Judaism. And as it was all beginning to unfold because the city had been taken, now this parade is happening. And then sometime later, we read in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel that now David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant, this, this, this God box, and he's bringing it into the city of Jerusalem. And as, 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 as all of this fanfare is happening, and the people are, again, on the streets, screaming and shouting because the presence of God is coming into the city. David is literally in an ephod, the king, and he's in front of the ark, and he's dancing with all of his might in front of the Ark of the Covenant. It was a festive day in Israel. And it's this scene that's being depicted in Psalm 68 that Paul turns his attention. He's taking the psalm and he's turning it from this moment in Israel's history with David and he's turning it to Jesus. He ascended on high and he led captives in his train. And then Paul makes a little diversion. Psalm 68 verse 18 says that the Lord received gifts from men. That the king received the gifts, the praise, the honor, the adulation. And that's what you would expect in these great victory marches. Praise, honor, people shouting about how great their king is. But in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says that he gave gifts to men. So the question here is that, is that Paul, is Paul messed up? I mean, is Paul actually misquoting Scripture here? Is this a mistake in the Bible? And the answer is, no, not, 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 not at all. Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down these words, and he was. Our God has received praise for who he is and for what he's done, but he has also given gifts. It's what Jesus did when he returned to his throne in heaven. He passed out gifts the greatest being salvation. But Jesus wasn't done giving. He also poured out gifts to the church to enable the church to be able to do its work. And then Paul goes further. Verse, verses, verses 9 and 10 in chapter 4, he says, "What does?" and notice it's in parentheses here, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly reigns? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And again, people read this and they get, they get confused because their minds are drawn to this lower earthly, oh, lower earthly region. And what does that mean? And what what in the world? What in the what? Listen, here's the here's the deal. Jesus is God. He's the voice. John one. We learn he's the voice of creation. He spoke. He's the logos, the word. And this one, this God became flesh and dwelt among us. And here's what I would say to you, that if you sit on the throne of heaven, if you were God and you were suddenly taking on flesh, would, would you say to yourself that that's a dissension? The answer is yes. Did he descend? Absolutely. Did he maybe even go a little bit further than that when he was murdered, when he was killed, when, when he was put into the grave? Yeah, he descended. But the one who descended ascended. And his grandeur as God only increased in that moment. He is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings. Philippians chapter 2, it's this beautiful verse that every knee is going to bow to this name. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. In fact, let's do that right now this morning. Jesus is Lord. Would you say it with me? Jesus is Lord. But it's more than a title. It's actually who Jesus is was proven to be because of the resurrection from the dead. Death could not hold him down. So what's the point? It's really simple. The point is that Jesus is worthy of receiving gifts. And he's also worthy of giving gifts. 
I love Revelation chapter 5. And I, I don't know if that is written down in your notes here. I would encourage you to, to write it if it's not. The cry going out in heaven is who is worthy to open the scroll? Who, who, who is worthy to take the scroll and open the seal? And John, the apostle John, is, is in his vision seeing this, and he's literally weeping because there's nobody. Nobody is worthy to open up the seal. And then suddenly, the lion from the tribe of Judah, and that would be Jesus. He comes forth. He takes the scroll. He breaks the seal. He opens the scroll because Jesus is worthy. There sits in heaven today one who is ascended. He descended so that he could do the work of ministry to provide grace for the, for the race of humans. And then he ascended to sit on that throne. And the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But today on this earth, we have the option of deciding to say that, to make him Lord of our lives. And the people who make that decision are the people that will spend eternity in heaven with him. So church again, Jesus is Lord. Come on, say it with me. Jesus is and that worthy one has brought gifts to us. Instead of receiving, as David pictured it, Paul is talking about giving. Now, don't be confused. Is Jesus worthy of your praise? The answer is, and you should be giving it so he can receive it. But that one who is worthy of all that is also one who is willing and able to give. So what are the gifts that Jesus gives? And that, that's, the, that's the second point that pops out of this passage. Jesus has blessed the church with leadership. Leadership resource to enable the church to fulfill its purpose. Matthew 16, Jesus took the disciples on a, on a retreat. It was about the halfway point in his ministry. About a year and a half in. He's wanting to make sure that the disciples are actually getting it. I mean, a lot has been thrown out at them, and there's a lot to take in, like Jesus being God. And so all this, and so with all the craziness that goes on everywhere Jesus goes, suddenly Jesus is taking his disciples north. He's taking them past the Sea of Galilee, about 20 miles north, to this little place called Caesarea Philippi. And there, when he gets them all alone, he's going to have some uninterrupted time so he can make sure that it's clear in their minds exactly what is going on. And in that place, he asks this question. He says, who, who are people saying that I am? The, re the reply came. Oh, some say you're John the Baptist. Some, some say you're Elijah. Some are saying you're one of the prophets. There were, there were all kinds of rumors circulating about who Jesus was, and these responses were among them. But Jesus wasn't so concerned here with what other people thought. He was concerned about what the disciples thought. So that's what he says next. But who do you say that I am? And it's, I mean, it's right in this moment that Peter doesn't even hesitate. He just blurts it out. He says, you're the Christ. You're the son of God. Christ, meaning Messiah. Christos, the Greek, for the Hebrew, Meshua. You are the Messiah. You're the promised one. You are, you, you are the son of God. And he, he was absolutely right in this declaration. This is the A-plus answer to the quiz. Jesus is the promised one, and he's also God. And then Jesus made a powerful statement in response. He said, he said you're right, Peter. And then he said in verse 18, I tell you the truth, you're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the, gate, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, sadly. Again, this is one of those places where people get confused. They think that Peter's the rock on which Jesus is going to build the church. And I'm telling you, that's wrong. The church and the foundation of the church is not built on any man. At best, we're fallible. At best, we're broken. At best, we can mess things up. No, Jesus does not build his church on, on, this, on Peter. The rock that Jesus is going to build his church on is on this statement, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son, the living God. On that, on that granite is the foundation of the church. Jesus was going to be the foundation, and he 
he would serve as that foundation and he would never abdicate that foundation. And it leads to two critical things that need to be said. First, is Jesus has laid the foundation to be the church himself. And we need to we need to always constantly remember and remind ourselves of our purpose. Is our purpose as a church in Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 through 20 right before Jesus ascended, he called his followers together and he commissioned them. And he said, "Therefore, go and make disciples. Make disciples. The purpose of the church is to do one thing, make disciples." We exist to do the will of God, and that is make disciples. A disciple is simply a follower of Jesus. As a church, we are here to help people become followers of Jesus. And, and the Great Commission goes on to say we do two things to accomplish this. One is evangelism. It's leading people who don't know Jesus into a relationship with Jesus, accepting him, them, him as their Lord and Savior. And then it's education. It's the process of bringing them to maturity, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. This is the sole purpose of the church. It is why we exist. And for that to happen, we need help. The, the, the task demands the availability of a, of a specific set of leaders if the church is going to accomplish its goal. And it, this is where Paul turns his thoughts in Ephesians 4.11. He, he says it was he, God, Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors, some to be teachers. In every organization, there are necessary people, necessary departments, necessary responsibilities. I mean, you, you probably work in some kind of organization or, or did work in some kind of organization where this is how, this is how it happens. There, 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 is a, there is a scope of people that exist to get a job done. And the church is no different. If we're going to accomplish our task, we need support. And some of that support comes in the form of leadership. And, and this is what Jesus did. Jesus provided leaders in the church to help the church accomplish its goal. So, so what, what are these leaders? Now, Paul, Paul writes the list right here. And you may be saying there's five of them, and, and lots of people do, but what I want you to understand is that there's really four of them here. I'll explain that in just a second. And you, we need to get it into our minds, what these, what, these, what these groups are. So first, there were apostles. The apostles were the personal representatives of Jesus Christ. They represented Jesus to establish and to nurture the church. Now, the, the word apostle is really simple. In Greek, it's apostolos. It's spelled almost exactly the same way, apostolos. It, it means one sent, one sent with a purpose. It's part of that command that is the foundation of the Great Commission, to go. Jesus sends us to go. Apostles are the ones sent. They are the going ones. And that command has been delivered to all of us. Honestly, nobody gets out of the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me. It's under heaven and earth. It's been given to me. Therefore, go. I'm, I'm, I'm commissioning you to go. You are, you are commanded to be sent, to represent the kingdom. We are all called to go and be witnesses for the Lord. In, in a general sense, this, world apply, this word applies to everybody, to every Christian. But Paul is not speaking here in a general sense. Paul is speaking here with a laser focus, a very specific calling, and that word would be the apostles. And what I mean by that is the capital A apostles. We all are small A apostles. But what Paul is talking about here is the capital A apostles. And this was a, this was a very small group. This group included, first of all, the 12 original disciples that Jesus called. The, the disciples, the mathetes in the Greek, the word means follower. And they followed Jesus for three and a half years, and then he sent them. So these 12 disciples, the same guys became apostles. The same 12 minus one guy, Judas, because Judas betrayed him. Judas committed suicide. And then you'll remember in Acts chapter 1 is the disciples' apostles are waiting in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit, that they're deciding that they need to replace Judas. They didn't do this just kind of haphazardly. They're actually quoting scripture about why they needed to do that out of the book of Psalms. And so, so the decision is made. At the end of the day, a couple of guys are put forward. Matthias, Matthias, they roll some dice. 
if that sounds that sounds dicey to you to do it that way, it's how they did. They just trusted that the Holy Spirit would lead, and Matthias was chosen. So we have the 12 minus Judas plus Matthias. And then a few years later, this guy by the name of Saul, Saul of Tarsus, Saul the Pharisee in Acts chapter 9 is confronted by Jesus where he is where he is called to be an apostle. He becomes the apostle Paul, the guy who wrote this book, who wrote half of the New Testament. These men served the church in its formative years, and they led, and they taught, and they established, and they pointed, and they wrote. This was a temporary office. It was a temporary office because of the criteria. And Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 26, lays out that criteria, that guideline. To be one of the select capital A apostles, well, you needed to be part of Jesus' ministry. You needed to be part of Jesus' ministry from his baptism to his resurrection. You can read all about that in verse 22, chapter 1 of the book of Acts. The men who would serve in this position had to be eyewitnesses to the total of Jesus's ministry. And from these men would come the foundational leaders and teaching that would establish the church to function down through the generations. These, these men traveled. They traveled widely. They traveled the world teaching and preaching. And then before they died, they started writing. They were writing down truths. They were writing down the things that we needed to know. They were led by the Holy Spirit to put this in writing. And it's from them that we get the new Testament. The New Testament is their gift to us about how to be led and how to be guided in the will and the work of the Lord. And because of that, their influence continues to this day. You should be thankful for these men who served in this capacity, which leads to the second group. There were apostles, and then there were prophets. The prophet is simply a spokesman person of God. In fact, the word prophet literally means mouthpiece. In Exodus chapter 3 and 4, God was calling 80-year-old Moses. Remember, Moses had committed murder when he was 40, and he fled the, the household, the family of Pharaoh, where he had been adopted into, and he ran off to the desert. For the next 40 years, he was, he was serving as a shepherd there. And then he saw this burning bush, Exodus chapter 3 and 4, and he was drawn to it. He came, and it was God speaking to him through the angel of the Lord, and he was commissioning him to go back to Egypt, stand before Pharaoh, and say, let my people go. Now, what God was actually calling Moses to do was to be his prophet, to be his mouthpiece. I'm going to tell you what to do. You go to Egypt. You say this. You tell Pharaoh, let my people go so they may worship me. Now, the interesting thing here is that Moses has got a thousand reasons about why he doesn't want to do it. And he's one by one by one listing them in, in, in front of God. And at the end of this, chapter four, God is a little bit fed up because Moses finally just says, I don't want to do it, so send somebody else. And that's, that's when God gets angry. God told Moses, I'm, I'm sending Aaron. I'm sending your brother, your blood brother Aaron. He's coming to meet you. In fact, he's, he's already on his way. I knew this was going to happen. And then here's what God said to Moses. Exodus 4, 15, he says, You shall speak to him. You will put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were, it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. So God is going to speak to Moses. Here's what I want you to say. Then Moses is going to speak to his brother Aaron. Here's what I want you to say, and it's just going to come down the line. The prophet was a mouthpiece, a spokesperson. Prophets were typically sent to specific places to deliver specific messages. It usually began with, God says, or the Lord says, or the word of the Lord is. And oftentimes, that simple statement would be scorned. That makes sense. I mean, how do, how do you, somebody shows up and says, God sent me, and here's what you need to know. I mean, if somebody showed up in my life and said that, I might say, yeah, right. And so for this reason, prophets oftentimes would perform miracles, or they would predict the future. So you may know that I am who I claim to be from God. Watch this. That's what was going on in, in, in the book of Exodus, starting in chapter 5, up through up through chapter 10 and 11, 12. 
The, the 10 plagues were demonstrations to Pharaoh that Moses actually was from God. How do I know that you're from God? Water to blood, frogs, gnats, all the cattle dies. How do I know that this is a message from God? Look around. Check it out. Nobody but God could do this. In fact, the magicians of Pharaoh finally say it, the third plague of gnats, they say, this is the finger of God. They recognized it. Prophets were called by God to deliver messages to people. And let me just tell you, folks, it would not be a job that anybody would have coveted. Nobody wanted to be a prophet because typically the prophets would go someplace and they would have some difficult message to speak, which is you're like, you're wrong and you need to repent. Thus says the Lord or destruction is coming. And because of that, they were maligned, hated, disrespected, even killed because of the message they delivered. The prophets were inspired by the Holy Spirit to reveal God's truth, just like the apostles. However, they didn't have the same authority as the apostles. The apostles were sent like to the world at large. Prophets were typically more of a direct hit to this people in this place at this time. But they both brought the word of the Lord. And for that, they both had huge importance in the founding of the church. I was online this week trying to figure out how many because I've never counted how many prophets there actually are in the Bible. We're, while we would say there are 13 apostles, there may be as many as 85 prophets in the, in the Bible. Isaiah and Jeremiah, Moses, people who were called by God to go and speak. Now, I need to stop right here and critically make an important point. Why the office of the apostle and prophet have ceased to exist. I want you to write this down because this is, it, it really is critical in our day and age. Why, why did these people come into existence in the first place? To bring us God's word. Here's the, here's the deal. We have it. They did their job. They did it well. It was written down. God has protected it down through the ages. I mean, that, the, that we have the Bible in our hands today is absolutely an amazing study and an amazing story. There's nothing missing. There's, there's, there's no need for somebody to show up and say, thus saith the Lord. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and, 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 and goodness. Make sure you notice the, the important distinction here, has given. This is past tense. This doesn't say will give. This isn't something in the future. It's done. The tools to know God, to know his will, to know his purpose, to wholly follow him are already in our hands. The resource is already here. So here's the, the, the other question. Could God send another prophet today? I mean, if the qualifications for an apostle is that they had to be part of Jesus' ministry from his baptism to his ascension, nobody today can meet that. So could there be a prophet today? And the answer is, yes, God could choose to send a prophet. But, and this is a big caveat. First, that prophet would have to only speak the words that we already know are from the Lord. This would have to be his message. So the question is, why? Now, people today want to say that a pastor or preacher is maybe a prophet because that's what we're doing. And in a sense, that is, we're declaring, we're talking about the Lord. But to be one of these capital P prophets, that is not who I am. God has not spoken to me and given me a direction or a directive to give to you. So could a prophet come today? Sure. But they would have to speak words that were completely, totally in keeping. And if they brought a new word, if they brought a new word, well, it would have to contain two things. Number one, it could never be in contradiction to anything that this book says. And second, it would, it would need to be accompanied by some kind of miracle or some kind of prophetic statement for the future. This is what's going to happen. And let me just tell you, a prophet can never be wrong. If a prophet is wrong at one point, he is not a prophet. In fact, the Old Testament says, take him out and stone him. 
because he's bringing false words. He does not represent the Lord. Now, a lot of people today claim to be prophets. But here's the deal. They haven't lived up to the criteria. I don't believe I have ever in my lifetime seen or heard the message of a modern-day prophet. And the reason is because there's really truly no need. So that said, let's, let's move on. God brought leadership gifts so the church could be established. Apostles, capital A, then prophets. And then the third group that he brought were evangelists. Evangelists. The, the, the word here in the Greek really is two words. Euangelistas, which you is, is the word meaning good or well. And angelico, angelio, is the word that we get angel from, angel, and that word means messenger. And so this word evangelism really is speaking of a good message, a message that brings joy, a message of goodness. Evangelists are people who do the functional and foundational work in the church of leading people to Jesus. And I've got good news. Jesus died for you. Your sins can be forgiven. It's good news. That said, I want to make sure you hear this. Evangelism is a command. Some like, somewhat like being an apostle, we are all small letter apostles. We're all sent to make a difference, and we are all sent to the world to evangelize. 2 Corinthians chapter 5.18 tells us that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Chapter, chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians verse 19 says that, that, that we are ambassadors of Christ, all of us. We're supposed to go to the places we are, and we're supposed to help lead people to the Lord. It's part of that command to go. But an evangelist is somebody who's gifted to do this is somebody that's going to maybe lead more than one or two or five people in their lifetime to the Lord. Sometimes there are people that are gifted evangelists. This would be like the Apostle Paul, who had the ability to go into a city and sit down in a square someplace and start teaching, and a, a crowd would be attracted, and before you know it, all kinds of people are coming to the Lord. In, in our modern-day world, we might think of somebody like Billy Graham as being a very gifted evangelist. Billy Graham's a, a website, and he died a couple of years ago, but his website says that he preached to two 115 million people in 185 countries. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people accepted Jesus through his ministry. There, there are people who are gifted evangelists that have been brought to the church to help the church at large see people coming to Christ. So there are apostles, there are prophets, then there are evangelists to help lead the church. And then lastly, the two categories that I believe need to go together are pastors and teachers. And the reason I think that these go together is because these designated responsibilities actually describe the ministry of the elders in the local church. There are three words that are used in the New Testament to describe an elder. First one would be episkopos. And if that sounds familiar to you, it, it's not surprising. Episcopalian. Episcopalian. The, the, the word speaks of being an elder. And it's, it's somebody who's an overseer, somebody who's overseeing the big picture of the church and making sure the things are going right. The second word is presbyteros. And if it sounds familiar, it should, because this word, Presbyterian church. The word presbyteros literally means an older man. Somebody, it's not necessarily chronological age. It's dealing with somebody who's wiser, older, mature. Somebody who knows what they're talking about. Somebody that you would entrust your care to because they're going to be able to lead you in the right way. And then, there, then there's the word that's used here in Ephesians chapter 4.11, and that's poi men. And this, this word means shepherd. Shepherd. Literally one of the guys who watches over the flocks out in the fields. Here in Ephesians 4.11, it's translated pastor, but most often in the New Testament, poimen is, is, is used to just simply mean shepherd. And the second word that appears here, we've, 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 got, we've got pastor, poimen, we have teacher. The word is simply applied to an instructor. 
teacher. This would, this would be an authority on the subject. It's able to draw lines, point in the right direction, help you to understand, move you down the road to maturity. Now, why am I putting these two words together into one office, pastor, teacher? Why? Because these two words together are the primary functions of the elders in the church. Shepherding, guarding and protecting the sheep that God has put in the flock of the local church, and teaching, making sure the doctrine of the church is pure, correct, making sure the sheep are hearing it, making sure the sheep are adhering to it. The shepherds or pastors of the church are called to watch over the sheep. So, so these four distinct offices were brought into existence by God. Two of them in a temporary season, apostles and prophets. Two of them ongoing, evangelists, pastors and teachers, elders. And it leads to the third point that I want to make sure you hear. All of these guys were given responsibility to make sure that certain things happened. These servants were unleashed to do specific work within the church. And that, that's, that's the third point here. So, so please, if you would, write it down. These servants are, are unleashed for, the, for these purposes. God brought these four offices together purposefully. It wasn't a willy-nilly thing. It's not like God didn't have anything better to do one day, so he just said, well, let's, let's put some people here and some people there and some people. No, very specifically, God brought this leadership group together to perform critical tasks. So what are they? Very quickly, four, four things. Number one, equipping the people of God for service. To prepare God's people for works of service, Ephesians 4.12 says so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, the two words I want you to notice here, the first is prepare, to prepare. It speaks of a process that leads to a consummation. It's a process of maturing somebody and getting to the point that they have arrived, fully prepared to do something. And then this second word, preparing people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. This word idea of this, the idea here with the word built up is now we're taking all these different pieces, like, like blocks, and we're putting them together to make an organization. So the elders come together, the evangelists, the apostles, pastors, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, elders come together. And the first thing they're trying to do is equip the people of the local church for the work of the ministry. Built up. And notice the twofold purpose here of equipping. Make sure you get it. First, individuals are equipped. They're trained. They're, they are unleashed. And then simultaneously, the body of Christ is built up. Now, I just want to pause here, and I, and I want to say this really loudly. It's been the misnomer in, in most churches that says we hire a pastor, we hire pastors, and they're our hired guns. They're there to do the work, and we come and we enjoy the fruit of their labor, and that is not our job. The job of the pastor is not to do the work. The job of the elders is not to do the work. The job of the pastors and elders is to prepare God's people to equip them, to train them, to bring them up to maturity so that, so that then you can be unleashed. So we can form together the body of Christ and be unleashed to, to do the work. Now, the, these points emphasize the importance of the church. We live in a day and age when people are downplaying the importance of the church. And really, COVID hasn't helped this at all. It's like, I can go home and I can stay home and I can be the church right at home. And who needs the church? It's not necessary. I can be a follower of Jesus from my armchair. And I, hear, I just want you to hear me say this loudly. No, you cannot. You cannot. You are not the body of Christ. You are a piece of the body. You have a gift or a few gifts, but you are not the church. You are part of the church. You are being built together into the body of Christ. Now, that shouldn't be surprising. God intended for the church to be built. You are Peter, and on this rock that I am the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The people of God should love the church as much as Jesus loves the church. We, we need to dedicate our lives to it. And good leaders do that. They equip 
the people of God to serve. And then the second thing leaders are called to do here in Ephesians chapter 4 is lead the church members to maturity. To prepare God's people for works of service, the body may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the full measure of the fullness of Christ. Our goal as pastors and teachers is to equip you to be necessary and working in the body and then to bring you to a point of maturity in your faith where you are looking more and more and more every day of your life like Jesus. Key words here, built up, mature, attaining. Leader's task is to help you to be more and more like Jesus. Thinking, acting, living out his word, his will, his character in the world that you find yourself every day. And then the third task of leadership is to ready the church for the onslaught. Ephesians chapter 4 says, verse 14, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. It's just a simple truth. Life is hard. And nobody's immune from it. There's only two kinds of people in the world, those who have suffered and those who will. If you haven't had suffering in your life, then take note. It's coming. Eventually, it's going to smack you upside the head, and it sometimes just comes out of nowhere. Life is hard. And, and here's the deal. On top of that, there's an enemy that's trying to make it even worse, because once you come to a point where you claim Jesus is your Lord and Savior, and you allow yourself to be formed and equipped and and, and are growing towards maturity, and you're taking on the role of being a part of the church to impact the community of the world that you live in. But here's the deal. The enemy's not going to sit back and just watch that. He's going to come at you. So life is hard just with natural things that can happen, with disease and problems and struggles. But on top of that, there's an enemy that's looking to take you down. To lead you far from God. To make you question if there even is a God. And the good leader recognizes this, and he's preparing the flock for the onslaught. And friends, this is a whole another reason why we need each other. Paul talks about this down in verse 16 where he says, we are knit together, literally stitched together. It's like a quilt, all these different pieces that have been cut out, and they're, they're now literally being stitched together, joined, knit together. So we could be anchored together in Christ. So when these hard times come, we're not, we, we, we're, we're not going to be prey to false doctrine in the places that the enemy would want to lead us to and take us down. We're not prey because we're anchored together to be solid. So when the onslaught does come, we stand strong. And the fourth thing leaders do is encourage us to remain ever focused. Ephesians 4.15, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. This, this is coming full circle, all things. And this describes my walk with Christ. Over the years, I've learned here, and I've learned here, and I've learned here, and I've learned here, and there's always so much more to learn. And, and, and the goal is to be developing me, to be developing you and, into a fully fashioned follower of Christ taking on his likeness, learning, and remaining ever focused to his will and to his purpose in our lives. And for that, God has brought leadership into the church. He's done it here. Pastors, teachers, apostles, prophets, this church has the resource of God to help it be everything that God called it to be, everything God wants it to be, everything it needs to be. So here's my, here's my question to you this morning. In thinking of leadership in the church, have you, have you ever thought that maybe, just maybe, they're God's gift to you? Who's he, the ascended one, who gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, elders, to help the church 
be organized and focused, founded, grounded, true doctrine and formed. The elders of this church are a gift from God to you. And friends, I, I want to encourage you to see them that way. Their job is not easy. But they take on the reins and the roles of responsibility with you in mind because their heart is to do these things. So my encouragement to you is to love them. Submit to them. Encourage them. As the Hebrew writer says in chapter 13, make their lives joyful by your encouragement of them. Bow your head. Would you do that? And let me ask you, friends, have you ever taken a moment to say thank you? Have you ever taken a moment to Put your arms around one of those guys and say, I'm blessed. They followed the call of God, and their heart is you. Let your heart be them. Father, I'm so grateful that in your wisdom you put this plan together. That you enabled it by resourcing it. And Father, we are blessed today because we can know these things. We can see them and we can step in the ways that you would have us go. So Father, we lift up our elders today those men serving now, those men that have served in the past, to be these shepherds and teachers in our midst, to point us to you, to direct us to you, to call us to you, to encourage us to you, to sometimes discipline us to you. Father, their, their, their task is difficult, but we know it's ordained by you. So, Father, our prayer today is that you would bless them that you would enable us to be an encouragement to them. And as a church, we would serve them in such a way that we would bring joy to their lives. And Father, ultimately, we, we know that when we serve them properly and follow them properly, that we're actually bringing joy to you, the great shepherd of our souls. So Father, thank you for your gifts. And Father, help us to receive them with joy and to live with them with joy. And that's our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said,